This podcast is a part of Sphera, a collective of independent media outlets from across Europe. For more information, visit sphera-hub.com. This is the week that we are finally going to do a live show. I mean, you're doing a live show. I never said I'd actually show up and help you. You're on your own. What? Joking. <laughs> Don't do that. Of course I'll be there. And I am genuinely looking forward to it. Uh, more than you, I think. Which is weird because you're the one who like goes on stage as their day job. This is going to be easy for you. Yeah, but I sing on stage after rehearsing for many, many weeks. And this is very different spontaneously talking eloquently in front of people and hoping that they're going to laugh. That's quite a different thing. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't hope you're all going to laugh. We're not a comedy podcast, but I hope you at least enjoy it if you're there. It's very exciting. We're going to be live on stage at the Tollhouse Town in Amsterdam at 7pm this Friday. Uh, and I think there's literally one or two tickets left. So if you happen to No, be... it's sold out. Oh, it's sold out? Yeah. Fantastic. Well, there you go then. <laughs> No pressure. Exactly. Have you decided what you're wearing? Oh, no. Maybe nothing but an EU flag? I don't know. That's probably a bad idea. I'm thinking of wearing a face mask because I think that will make it slightly less scary and I can just blame the pandemic. Mm, they want to see a pretty face, though. Anyway, it's going to be either really good or a hot mess. And if you can't join us because you don't live in Amsterdam, do not fear because a recording of the live show is going to be landing in your feeds next week. Maybe slightly earlier than when our normal episode would come out. So don't be flummoxed if our episode doesn't come out on the normal Thursday next week. Yeah, we want it to be hot and fresh, not stale like an old biscuit. Um, so that's what's happening next week. What are we talking about this week? This week we're going to be talking about Ursula von der Leyen's State of the Union address, which took place last week at the European Parliament in Strasbourg. The yearly State of the Union address from the European Commission President is the event of the European calendar, said no one ever. <laughs> I was going to say. But in all seriousness, we still think it's worth discussing to see which direction Ursula wants to be steering this political and economic ship we live on. We've invited a wonderful Brussels-based journalist to help us unpick Ursula's speech, Beatriz Rios. Beatriz is someone we've been wanting to speak to for quite a while now because she's just generally superb at making the European institutions seem more understandable and approachable. So we're thrilled she's agreed to join us. That's coming up later. For now, it's time for... Who has had a bad week, Katie? Uh, it's been a bad week for my adopted country, France, because of a little something called Submarine Gate. Uh, I don't think anyone else is actually calling it that, but who knows? Might catch on. Um, so yeah, this whole submarine debacle, how much have you been following it? I mean, a little bit. Um, I think simply because it's about defence contracts, I can't like get myself too excited about it. But it does seem to really be kicking up a storm there in France, doesn't it? It does. It's definitely about a lot more than defence contracts. So let me fill you in. Uh, this all started on Thursday when three countries, the US, the UK and Australia, announced they were forming a new kind of defence club called AUKUS, 
which is a horrible portmanteau of Australia, UK and US. And I do not like it, but we're stuck with it. And even though no one will actually say it out loud, the main goal of this alliance is to stand up to China. Um, how much do you know about Asian regional politics? Like, I don't know if it's really your jam. You're really putting me on the spot there. I know loads. <laughs> no, I don't know much. All right. Well, I am really interested in all of this stuff because half of my family live in Vietnam. So if you will indulge me, I'm going to do a little bit of an Asian detour before we get to the French stuff, because I do think it's really important for understanding what's going on. So China, generally terrifying government, evil in many ways within its own borders. In terms of how it behaves within the neighborhood, one of the things that Asians have been getting really unnerved about over the past few years is how China behaves in the South China Sea which is the bit of sea in the Pacific between like southern China, Hong Kong and uh, other countries like Vietnam, the Philippines, Taiwan. And when you get a sec, just do a Google image search for the words South China Sea claims. Because you will very quickly see some very handy maps which show just how outrageous China is in terms of what it says belongs to it. Oh, yeah. So we're talking about the water that goes literally right up to the borders of all those other countries, like right up in their grill. Yeah, that's bold. Why is China so possessive over the sea? Well, it is super strategic for trade. Loads of shipping goes through it. It's also got loads of natural gas underneath it. So these are really strategic waters and China wants them. And over the past 15 years or so, as China has been getting more and more powerful, it has been behaving more and more outrageously. Uh, so for one thing, they've built a bunch of fake islands in this sea so that they can say, la la la, we have an island here now, which means that we can do whatever we want in the water immediately around it. Uh, so they've been staging loads of military exercises with their extremely large, scary navy and generally freaking out their neighbours who were thinking, well, you know, if China wanted to invade us, who could really stop them? So that's the context in which this new US-UK-Australia alliance was set up. You've got America, very worried about China as a general rival superpower. You have Australia, a country that is right there in the Pacific, within reach of China. And you've also got the UK, which is kind of involved in this thing for some reason, sort of hanging around like a bad smell. But the thing that these countries have in common, apart from all speaking English, is that they're all quite keen to be seen as tough on China. And to send a signal that makes China think, okay, maybe we can't just do whatever we want. And if we did, for example, attack one of our neighbours, there would be consequences. So is this where the submarines come in then? Yes, that is where the submarines come in. So what happened is the UK, US and Australia announced this new alliance last week. And as they announced it, they were like, so one of the things that's going to happen as part of this is that Australia is going to build some really, really fancy submarines using US technology, nuclear powered submarines. And because of this, Australia is unfortunately going to have to walk out of a deal it made with France five years ago to buy 12 French submarines. They were just like, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. So there is this extremely valuable defense contract for France that is now just not happening. You say extremely valuable, but it's like 80 billion or something, isn't it? Yeah, there's a few different numbers floating around for how much it was worth. But a lot of estimates are saying in today's money, probably 50 billion euros, maybe more, maybe 80. And this whole thing is just going down like a cup of cold sick. It is quite difficult to overstate just how mad France is about this. They are absolutely furious. And the money is one thing. That is obviously a really huge amount of money that could be used for public services. 
But it's not really about the money. It's about the fact that all of these countries are supposed to be allies, really, really close allies. In France, you sometimes hear this line about France being America's oldest ally, in fact. And it just doesn't feel like how allies normally behave with each other. It's been really weird this week. Uh, it's felt like another one of those moments where I'm like, oh, maybe I do deserve French nationality. Because I'm like really pissed off about this. It feels like these three countries have gone behind our backs and like organized this whole thing deliberately and haven't invited us to be involved. And before you say, well, you know, we're talking about the other side of the world here. What does France really care about what happens in the Pacific Ocean? France really does care. Um, I've got a little geography question for you. Guess what country neighbours Australia immediately to the left and to the right? Mm, I don't know. So if you get yourself back on Google Maps and scroll all the way across the Indian Ocean to the west, the first thing you hear is the island of Réunion, which is a ah. French overseas territory. It's home to about a million people. That's the place where there were all those cases of the better variant. Yes, good knowledge. Um, and if you go the other way to the east, you immediately hear another French territory, New Caledonia. So France is very present in this region and it thinks of itself as a regional power. It's actually been really involved in military maneuvers aimed at trying to stand up to China in the South China Sea. So to be completely left out of this new alliance, that is a big blow to French pride. And it's also, and maybe this is maybe just my new paranoia talking as someone who's hopefully going to be French quite soon, but in general, France has tended to be quite sensitive about Anglophone countries dominating everything culturally and sometimes also politically. So the fact that this is three English-speaking friends like clubbing together and leaving France out for no super obvious reason... I do think that is also something that's making it sting a little bit, even if it's maybe a little bit irrational to think about it like that. Do you know why France were left out? I mean, they could have included France. Well, this is the big question. I mean, Australia, which is the country actually getting the submarines, they've said, we're just doing what's in our best interest here and we wanted the best submarines. These are going to be nuclear submarines. Nuclear submarines are more powerful than diesel ones because they can stay underwater for longer. And obviously, if your submarine is like bobbing around on the surface for ages, it's like a less good submarine. But um, yeah, that's the thing about the submarines. It's not about France being left out of the, the club overall. Some people have suggested it's because France isn't seen as tough enough on China. Macron has been seen as quite keen to engage with China on some fronts and not be too confrontational. But, you know, the government would absolutely deny that it is like soft on China in any way. So apart from various politicians and apparently citizens like you being uh, <laughs> angry about it, has France actually done anything? Have they responded in any tangible way? Yeah. So the main thing they've done is order their ambassadors to the US and Australia to come home for talks, which is the thing that governments do when they're really, really mad about things. Um, somewhat hilariously, France didn't ask its ambassador to the UK to come home. And when he was asked why, the French foreign minister gave this sick burn. He was like, well, to be honest, London is a third wheel in all of this. They're basically irrelevant. But yeah, it does feel like this is potentially going to have some other really quite big consequences. There's already talk about France maybe torpedoing Australia's trade deal with the EU and like blocking it in revenge. It's also really not clear what happens to NATO now, because Macron has been saying for months now that he thinks NATO is dead as an alliance. And given that the US and the UK are in that alliance, along with France, the whole idea of NATO being a club of countries that really trust each other over military staff and would leap to defend each other, that's just been kind of blown out of the water. 
it's kind of difficult in general to tell what the overall fallout of this is going to be. Some people are calling it the biggest diplomatic row within the West since the Iraq war. But other people think it just all blow over eventually. And in the meantime, isn't this quite embarrassing for Macron when he's just about to start trying to be elected again? Yes and no. I actually don't think this is going to do him any harm necessarily, because I think depending on what he does with it, it's an opportunity to look tough on the US and like independent from the US. And that often plays out quite well in French elections. So maybe not such a bad week for Macron, even if it's been a really pretty bad week for France. I wish I could be a fly on the wall for all these meetings at the UN this week with Biden and all these political leaders from Europe. It's going to be so painful. And that's the other thing that's interesting is that like here in France, people were quite hopeful that we were going to be really chummy with the new American government because it's really very francophone. Monsieur Blinken, the secretary of state, he's one of like quite a few senior American officials that speak really good French. But uh, I think it's going to be a little bit icy now. Awkward. Who's had a good week? It's been a good week in Europe for the rights of LGBTQ parents and their rainbow families. Yay. Yeah, it was after the European Parliament passed a resolution arguing for rainbow families and same-sex couples to have the same freedom of movement and family reunification rights as straight people do. So... For example, if you're a lesbian couple who got married in Belgium and one of the mothers gets offered a job in Poland for work, MEPs want to ensure that that woman could then move with her wife and her children and that Poland would recognise her legal marriage and her family setup, even if the same setup wouldn't be legally recognised for someone who had wanted to get married in Poland. Does that make sense? It does. So all countries should recognise marriage certificates and whoever is listed as the parents on birth certificates, even if they involve same-sex or queer couples. It might sound like an obvious thing that countries should respect who a child's parents are and who you are married to, but sadly in some parts of the EU it's still not obvious and this resolution is responding in large part to the pretty awful conditions that LGBTQ plus people experience to this day in Hungary and Poland. So what does this resolution actually do to make life better in like concrete ways for rainbow families in Hungary and Poland then? Well, it doesn't do much, to be honest. It's a non-binding resolution, so it doesn't trigger anything legal. Mm. But the resolution does send a strong message. And in the resolution, they encourage the European Commission, the governmenty bit of the EU, to consider sanctions against Hungary and Poland for violating principles of non-discrimination. And the vote was really strongly in favour of this resolution. 387 MEPs voted for and 167 against. So it gives the Commission a really strong mandate to forcefully push back against Hungary and Poland for their homophobic policies. Aren't the Commission already pushing back, though, in quite a few different ways? Yeah, they are. Um, I mean, many activists would argue that they've not been strong enough and that they've mainly been strong with their words and not strong enough with actions. But you may have heard that the Commission started legal proceedings against both Poland and Hungary about two months ago. Poland is being sued for breaching fundamental rights due to the so-called LGBT ideology-free zones in certain local authorities. And... In Hungary, the Commission are pushing back against their new law that bans any depictions of LGBTQ plus people in books or films that might be seen by under-18s. 
We're still waiting on those court cases and in the meantime, it was reported a few weeks ago that the European Commission had sent letters to the five local authorities in Poland with these LGBT free zones and said that they would be withholding some EU funds to these areas until they rescind the resolutions. Good. Yeah, and that adds up to about 126 million euros. So we'll see if they listen. Poland and Hungary are both, meanwhile, waiting on billions of euros in grants from the EU's huge COVID stimulus plan that have been both delayed reportedly due to rule of law and corruption concerns from the Commission. Another battle entirely, even though Orban this week was trying to paint this funding delay as being entirely due to disagreements around Hungary's LGBT policies. Depressingly, he seems to think that painting the EU as fighting for gay rights with him on the other side of the battle will win him votes, Mm. which sadly might be true in some cases. But hey, I said it'd been a good week for LGBTQ parents. And there's another reason for that. And it's because the European Court of Human Rights ruled in favor of a mother in Poland who was refused custody of her youngest child due to her sexual orientation. The European Court agreed with the arguments for her lawyers that the Polish court had ruled to give her former husband custody of their youngest child because of the fact that she was now in a relationship with a woman and that this was discriminatory. Yeah, during the original case, the woman's sexual orientation was repeatedly referred to as a reason for why she should not gain custody of her child. Completely wild that that can happen in the European Union. But thankfully, the court asserted her rights as an LGBT woman to have and raise children with the same rights as anyone else. And they awarded her 10,000 euros in damages which I'm sure in no way makes up for the many years she spent without her children. Because here's the tragic thing. This case has been going on since 2006. So she's missed like all of those really precious years with her kid then. Yeah, I can't imagine what this has done to her and her children and how she's carried on fighting. But the fact that this ruling in favour of a woman in a same-sex relationship came in the same week that the European Parliament backed rainbow families and same-sex couples made me think that it was just about enough to overshadow some of the bleakness in this continent and give good week to rainbow families and LGBTQ parents. Winter is coming, everyone. Sorry to be a downer because I know it's been a bit of a rubbish summer, but the leaves are starting to turn in Paris. Autumn is upon us. And in Warsaw, where our producer Wojciech is, it's already only two degrees Celsius. Um, The reason I mention all of this is because we don't actually have that much of 2021 left. This fairly rubbish year is going to be drawing to an end before we know it. And that means that we're already starting to think about how we might fund this podcast into 2022. This podcast does take quite a long time to make every week. And we are super, super grateful for the listeners who support us so that we can carry on doing it. So if you'd like to make sure that we can continue beaming this podcast into your lovely ears next year, we'd be incredibly grateful if you could chuck us a donation. You can give as little as two bucks a month at patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. Who are the latest people we have to thank, Dominic? This week, we'd like to thank Teddy Cahill and also Peter Solecki for increasing his pledge. Thank you, everyone, so much for continuing to support us on Patreon. I know we're going to see a few of you in Amsterdam later this week because I think the audience of our live show is going to be mainly made up of Patreons, which is great. We hope they don't all cancel their monthly donations after realizing that in real life, I speak with many more ums and ahs than I do on this podcast because... Katie kindly and painstakingly edits this show every week. (laughs) The truth is about to come out. 
It sure is. I have to be honest, I did not watch the State of the Union this week. Did you? I watched the highlights. Yeah, me too. I mean, to be fair, it was in the middle of the day and I was like working and stuff. Um, So I also just caught the highlights. And one of the highlights that caught my eye was this footage of one of the European commissioners knitting during the speech. Did you see that? No, I didn't. Sounds like you watched a much better highlights reel than me. Margarita Vestager. She was just sitting there casually knitting an elephant. Why an elephant? What's the relevance of an elephant? Yeah, good point. I actually have no idea. Maybe it's like the elephant in the EU room. I don't know. Um, But they do say it's good to like do something with your hands while you're listening and like it stops you from zoning out. So I don't think Ursula von der Leyen should be too offended that one of her colleagues was just knitting away as she was trying to give this inspiring speech. Anyway, I digress. The State of the Union. Let's be honest, it isn't something that gets discussed much in the bars of Europe. I honestly think most people had no idea it was happening at all this week. But it is this moment every year when the European president stands up in front of the whole continent and she tells us this is where I think we're at. And this felt like a really good moment to take stock in general of how Ursula von der Leyen is doing because she's had a pretty rocky ride so far. She started the job as EU president in December 2019. So pretty much her whole time in office, we've been in a global pandemic. So how is she doing? Dominic and I do our best to follow what's happening in Brussels from outside the bubble, but we are very much amateur observers of the bubble. So it felt like we could do with some help deciphering what actually went down this week. And we knew exactly who we wanted to talk to. Beatrice Rios, she is a Spanish freelance journalist in Brussels, working for El Economista and the Luxembourg Times, among others. And she is a super good explainer of how the Brussels bubble works. Here she is. What is the point of this whole State of the Union speech thing? Well, in a way, it's first of all the opportunity for the European Commission president to take a stock of the work that they've been doing over the past few months. But also it's an opportunity to set the agenda for the next few months of the year. So they basically present what are going to be the main legislative proposals that are going to be tabling, but also why they're going to be the main themes that they're going to be pursuing in the year. We face new and enduring challenges in a world recovering and fracturing unevenly. So there is no question the next year will be another test of character. Do you think that another point of the State of the Union is to try and cut through and reach the public? And if so, to what extent do you think she managed to do that with this speech? Well, if that's the goal, I don't think she achieved it. First of all, I think it's very hard to get to the public when you have a four-hour speech while debate with the members of the European Parliament at 9 a.m. in the morning. Was it really four hours? It was four hours. It was extremely long. So obviously you're never going to have citizens following for four hours of debate about the State of the Union. So the format obviously doesn't help. And I think a way to maybe solve that would be obviously to do it shorter. Uh, probably to do it in a better time, I don't know, 7 or 8 p.m., where everyone is at home and can be watching. But then also, don't only live stream the speech in the audiovisual system of the commission, because most of the citizens don't even know that exists. So if you really want to get to a a bigger audience, you might want to broadcast uh, through the channels, the TV public channels of all the member states, maybe. But I think there is also a bigger question, which has been one of the main issues in the EU, and is to what extent actually people feel engaged with European politics. 
here I think we have a bigger fish. <laughs> in a way, you would need to connect with people beyond the State of the Union. You would have to make them feel that they have a say on European affairs, that there is a way that they can influence the decision-making process in Brussels. And for instance, by not having a direct vote on the formation of the Commission itself, because in the end it's elected by the member states, it's very hard for citizens to understand what's the point anyway of following this pitch by someone they don't know and they don't even know exactly how it's elected. So there is a lack of knowledge about the functioning of the European Union, but there is also a detachment of the citizens from the process in Brussels because they don't feel that they have a say in what's going on. Now, one of the attempts of trying to bridge that gap is by putting together this conference on the future of Europe um, and trying to involve citizens in debates about what the Europe should be looking like in the next few years and trying to make sure that those debates that are going to be happening all across the Union are then translated into action. One of the things that the Commission President promised during her speech on the State of the Union was that she was going to make sure that this is actually translated into concrete proposals from the Commission, legislative proposals that then are negotiated with the members of the Parliament and the Council. I hope that's true, because otherwise this attempt of participative democracy would probably leave the citizens with the feeling that they're just called to have a debate, but then they don't really have a say in what happens in Brussels. And in terms of what she actually said in this speech, did we get a good sense of where she thinks Europe's place in the world should be or was it or was it pretty vague? If I'm completely honest, I have the, the perception that Ursula von der Leyen has never had a vision for Europe. She was not meant for the job. She was not running to be the president of the European Commission. She was elected out of the blue in July 2019 and she did not have a plan. So... I couldn't hear some slack because obviously the first year of her mandate has been so much focused on managing the pandemic that she didn't really have the time to focus on what she wanted to make of the European Commission that she's leading. But I don't see a change in the way she is now continuing her mandate. And in the State of the Union, we could have foreseen everything that she mentioned because she talked about the need to reform the budgetary and fiscal rules of the Union, considering how the deficit and debt level of the member states are off the roof. She talked about the need to find a, a stronger voice uh, of the Union in the world and the need to reform its defense and foreign policy, which we know would happen as a consequence of uh, the withdrawal of the US from the Afghanistan and all the consequences that we have seen after that. She talked about the need to continue the negotiation on the legislative proposals that the Commission put uh, on the table in July to reduce the emissions by 55% by 2030 and trying to find climate change. But she didn't quite give a vision of how that all would play out in the future, what Europe should look like in the coming years, what is she trying to achieve. She's just going step by step and not really having a very ambitious uh, vision about what Europe looks like. Which I think is interesting, considering that she was one of the closest allies of Angela Merkel in the German government. Because it's in a way what Merkel has been doing over the past few years with Europe, right? Like, she's not a crazy ambitious person. She doesn't have a, a very strong vision of what Europe should look like. She's been just making sure that Europe would get through its every crisis. And I think in a way, von der Leyen is acting in a similar way. She's just being very pragmatic and coming with concrete proposals about how things should be done, but she's not coming with a great vision about what Europe should look like. What do you think was missing from this speech? Self-criticism? <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, and this is something that most of the members of the European Parliament told her, right? First of all, I think if we want to address 
the issues and the problems that Europe is facing, which are many, we have to acknowledge them. And there was not a lot of reflection about what is going wrong, but especially what went wrong, uh, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic and especially at the beginning of the vaccine strategy that the European Commission put together. It's true that we have over 70% of the adult population vaccinated, that borders reopened, that the economy is picking up. But we need to reflect on what went wrong and why did we start vaccinating so late? Uh, what was the problem in negotiating the contracts with the pharmaceutical companies? Whether the Commission had the capabilities and the expertise to do that? Why member states didn't come together from the beginning to make sure that there was a, a true coordination of the policies across the Union? So all these things need to be acknowledged so that we can actually find a solution for those problems. We learned the lessons from the past when we were too divided and too delayed. Last time, it took us eight years for the Eurozone GDP to get back to pre-crisis level. This time, we expect 19 countries to be at pre-pandemic levels this year, with the rest following next. And the lessons from the financial crisis could serve as a cautionary tale. At that time, Europe declared victory too soon, and we paid the price for that. And we will not repeat that mistake. Did she come up with any new policies that you weren't expecting her to talk about or yeah, any priorities that we hadn't heard her talk about before? There were a couple of things that were surprising for me in a positive way, I might say, because I've been very critical today. So I feel that I have to try to bring a little bit of positivism. So one of the things that she mentioned is that she wants to propose a legislation to ban products coming into the single market that has been produced with forced labor. I think that's absolutely a great idea, but I struggle to see how the commission is going to make sure that happens. Even though everything that it's trade is a competence of the European Union, which means that the commission is in charge of it, there has been a lot of troubles in trying to put together this sort of legislation in other areas of trade. So I struggle to see how this is actually going to be translated into concrete proposal, but also how is it going to be enforced, because that's very complicated. We know that some European companies might be based in third countries, uh, where they're actually benefiting from these let's say, lacks legislations on labor rights, but they also might not be an European company, it might be a second company that is hired by a European company to produce the product. So how are they going to be able to control this, considering the limited resources that the European Union has itself? And another proposal that was very interesting for me, it was this legislation on trying to fight gender-based violence, which I think is absolutely key in Europe, but again, the competence in justice is on the hands of the member states, so there's little that the Commission can actually do. But then at the same time, what we have seen over the past few years is actually a backlash against uh, women's rights in many, many countries around the EU. And one of the things that we have seen is Poland announcing that they are going to withdraw from the Istanbul Convention, which is a convention that uh, set the uh, legal basis uh, for policies to fight gender-based violence. Uh, but also misogynist governments in Hungary and, you know, and even in the progressive countries like Belgium, where I live, the legislation on gender-based violence is very outdated. So it's hard for me to see how the Commission can actually bring all the member states together, considering that we have very different views about this issue. But I still feel that it's a key problem in the European society and that obviously it requires uh, a response. It was Robert Schumann who said, Europe needs a soul, an ideal, 
and the political will to serve this ideal. And Europe has brought those words to life in the last 12 months. Von der Leyen also spent quite a lot of time talking about the need to boost Europe's soul. What exactly do you think she was talking about there? I mean, it was very interesting that she mentioned like a thousand times the word soul, but she didn't quite explain what she meant by that, right? So you might have to ask her or her team what she was referring to. You know, when you think about Europe's soul, I think it very much depends who you ask, right? If you ask uh, the CEO of a small and medium-sized company, they might tell you that the soul of Europe is the single market. If you ask a John student, they might tell you that is the Erasmus program. Now, if you ask me... I think the soul of Europe are its citizens, for the good and the bad. I think we are what we make Europe. I feel that Europe are the uh, NGOs that are saving people in the Mediterranean where the member states are not acting. I feel that Europe are the uh, activists fighting for LGBTQI rights in Poland. I think that Europe are the people who are opposing dictatorships uh, in Belarus. I think Europe are each and every person that is trying to make Europe a better place, a place where everyone feel seen and respected and valued. And I think if we would be able to come together and create a political space where everyone feels represented, we might be able to bring European politics that fight for the common good so that we can actually make a better Europe. But that goes way beyond the buildings in Brussels and the institutions and the governments. I think it's more about who we are and who do we want to be. So for me, that's the soul of Europe. I thought that was really beautiful, what B said at the end there. What do you think the soul of Europe is? I think Beatrice is the soul of Europe. <laughs> Me too. She's fantastic. You should go follow her on Twitter. She is an excellent person to follow for deciphering the Brussels bubble and how it works. The link is in the show notes. What have you been listening to this week or watching or otherwise consuming? Yeah, well, this segment's getting harder again as I start to enjoy more culture in real life in my local habitat. And yeah, it doesn't feel like it'd be that fun for me to just talk about the random plays I go and see in Amsterdam each week, even if they're brilliant. But one thing uh, that I enjoyed in person that other people around the continent will also be able to enjoy in person soon is a Kosovan film called The Hill Where Lionesses Roar. Hmm. It tells the story of three teenage girls who live in a small town in the middle of nowhere in Kosovo and are working out what to do with their lives whilst waiting to hopefully get a place at university. It's touching and entertaining and even a bit thrilling. And it stars three brilliant young women in the lead roles. And rather upsettingly, it was directed by a 19-year-old. No, why have we achieved so little? I know. Luana Bajrami was 19 when she directed this movie. And she actually appears in it herself in a cameo. And if you see it, you might recognise her because she played the housemaid, Sophie, in the 2019 movie Portrait of a Lady on Fire. 
Oh, cool. The Hill Where Lionesses Raw is what it's called, and it's not out on widespread release yet, but it appeared at a nice independent outdoor cinema festival in Amsterdam, and I did a little research, and it seems like it's going to be distributed more widely across the continent soon. So keep an eye out for it wherever you are. Nice. What have you been enjoying, Katie? Uh, I'm keeping it in the family this week because I want to recommend something made by my colleagues at my other job, my day job. My friends in the Moscow Bureau of AFP have just released a five-part podcast series about Alexei Navalny, enemy number one of Vladimir Putin. And uh, it's really excellent. It's called The Poisoning. And each episode looks at a different facet of Navalny's story. Navalny is a person, the good, the bad and the ugly, the movement he's built. And let's not forget the utterly crazy story of his poisoning when he nearly died last year. Uh, I really recommend it. The Poisoning. I literally just listened to the first episode while I was packing up my house. Oh, cool. And I also really enjoyed it. Hi like the sound design and the music they chose it's like on the verge of being inappropriately light but i think it's just ironic enough that it's really tasteful i'm gonna pass on that feedback For my happy ending, I want to talk about those houses in Italy that you can buy for just one euro. Do you remember? Vaguely. Remind me? Yeah, we've discussed it a bit before on the show that certain towns, often with depleting populations and crumbling buildings, have been auctioning off houses for just a euro or two in order to persuade more people to move to their part of the world. I've always been a bit sceptical. I thought it sounds too good to be true. But apparently not, according to a nice article in the I newspaper, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, that looks at a few different experiences of people who have gone through one of these schemes and bought a house for just one euro or two. Hmm. The journalist highlights some real success stories with people setting up restaurants, old dilapidated buildings finally becoming habitable again, and people moving from all over the world to live in beautiful ancient hilltop towns in Italy. Most of these one euro house schemes do have some strings attached. You do have the responsibility to foot the bill for renovations that are often urgently required. And with many of these schemes, you have to actually live there, not just use it as a holiday home, which I think seems fair enough if you're getting such a bargain basement house. Yeah, and also because the whole point is to regenerate the area and make it full alive again, right? Exactly. And it does seem to be working for a lot of people, as well as for these local communities. An Australian guy who moved from London to Sicily six months ago with a one euro home was interviewed and said, it may seem too good to be true, but it really isn't. Fear is what holds people back. I say take the plunge. So if anyone feels like taking the plunge, there are going to be 20 more houses coming up for auction in the town of Sambuca di Sicilia with starting prices of two euros, a bit pricey, in November. Anyone fancy it? We could get one with one of our uh, Patreon donations. We could. Oh, my God. And then just live together in a podcast house and do the renovation. Who would kill the other one first? That's my question. see you in Amsterdam I guess Yay! we are really really looking forward to meeting some of you there listeners and for those of you who won't be able to join us it'll be almost like you're there in the room with us because unless something goes horribly wrong next week's episode on the feed will be the live episode so look out for that in your feeds a little bit earlier than usual probably Tuesday 
In the meantime, you can find us slathered all over the internet. Where can people find us? They can find us on Twitter, at EuropeansPod, on Instagram, at EuropeansPodcast, on Facebook, the Europeans Podcast, or on our website, EuropeansPodcast.com. This podcast was produced by me and Wojciech Alexiak. Our senior producer is Katz Laszlo. We are part of the Are We Europe family. Find more like-minded podcasts at the link on your tiny little screen there. All right, I've got a train to catch. See you soon. Bye.